Hello and welcome to the Stack Magazine's podcast. My name is Stephen Watson and I'm the founder of Stack, the service that searches out the best independent magazines and delivers them to thousands of readers around the world every month. This week I'm speaking with Olivia Spring, founder and editor of Sick, their magazine made by chronically ill and disabled people and which released its third issue earlier this year. Reading the magazine, I was particularly struck by the way we've come to think about illness, particularly during the pandemic, as being quite a simple binary. Your COVID test is positive or negative, you're sick or you're well. But of course, the reality is much more complicated than that, especially if you're somebody who is already living with ill health just as part of your everyday reality. In this conversation, Olivia speaks about her own health and about why she decided to start the magazine in the first place and how she's using it as a way to challenge some of the ableist prejudices that she faces day to day. I'm very pleased to say we have copies of Sick available to buy in the Stack shop, so if Olivia's story makes you want to see this one for yourself, head over to stackmagazines.com forward slash shop and pick one up there. And I hope you'll enjoy this conversation with Olivia Spring from Sick. Hey, Olivia, thanks so much for taking time to talk. Thanks so much for having me. So you are founder and editor of Sick magazine, um, and I was really excited to speak to you about this one, particularly now when I guess we're at a point where for sort of a year and a half, coming on two years, everyone has been obsessed by the idea of health. And reading Sick magazine makes you realise just what uh, a one-sided view of that you tend to get in in the in the mainstream media so maybe you could tell us a little bit about sick and and how the pandemic has affected this latest issue yeah i mean it's been really bizarre i think to to watch everyone kind of become obsessed with illness and and death and what lives are worth you know living um Yeah, I mean, it's definitely like in a lot of the submissions, you know, you're seeing new experiences, what people are going through on top of already being disabled and chronically ill, having to navigate like being vaccinated and, you know, going back to in-person events. Like it's it's very, it's just kind of strange and disheartening. Mm. Um, With accessibility, you know, we've seen so many places be more accessible by remote options, even like school. I've thought a lot about my trouble with attending school when I was younger and how the idea of remote learning was not even something that was ever thought about and how much of a difference that could have made to me mm-hmm. and how that never would have been considered, you know, and now that suddenly becomes a normal thing that's totally doable. Mm-hmm. It's really hard to watch that all happen for these circumstances, but mm-hmm. not when disabled people need it. Yes. Um, so it's been a really difficult year, you know, the, two years like you said the disability the disabled community has really kind of felt forgotten i mean seeing people go out and kind of act like there's not the pandemic is over um when it disproportionately affects you know disabled people it's it's really a rough time <laughs> yeah yeah I, I guess one of the things that really struck me is how so over here in the uk um the the phrase underlying health conditions like almost became sort of a disclaimer so you know kind of the news would be talking about 
deaths and hospitalizations and then there'd be this bit at the end of like you know the well you know the x percent of these people had underlying health conditions it's like oh, okay well they're like you know <laughs> that's that doesn't count in the statistics then there you know whereas actually what we've got here with sick is a whole magazine of underlying health conditions and a really intimate telling of just what it's like living with that on a day-to-day basis yeah exactly and i think people don't understand how many people have underlying conditions how many people are actually disabled people expect that this disability or term underlying conditions presents itself um if someone is, is sick but it, it really doesn't you know and so people you know will make comments to young people throughout the pandemic oh you're fine you're young you know and mm-hmm. that's really just not true and it's for me it really brought me back to a place that I was trying to you know get over of like when I first got sick and just everyone telling you know not believing me kind of telling me I was crazy and then I finally am you know at this point in my life where I'm accepting my identity of being disabled I'm proud of my identity as disabled and then to have all these people just say to erase that just because I'm young is just so difficult you just want to be seen you know and it's it was also really hard not even having technically an underlying condition in the UK like I wasn't diagnosed with anything while I was there um you know I had a diagnosis of chronic Lyme disease but that's just very you know no one really talks about that or takes it seriously so I wasn't even considered someone that was at risk when I felt like you know who knows how my body would react to something. I don't, my body is just so unpredictable and I have so many illnesses and it's just, it's honestly kind of difficult for me to talk about because it's so, so many emotions and so many different things going on that it's all really kind of jumbled in my brain and I feel like it's going to take a long time for it to kind of make more sense and to digest it all. Mm-hmm. The, that was actually one of the things that really jumped out at me reading the the magazine is, the fact that in the majority of the pieces, there's, there's no uh, single diagnosed condition. The, and that might be because I suppose the person doesn't want to present themselves as, you know, I, I am this person, I'm defined by this illness. But actually, in a lot of cases, it seems to be that there are just a whole load of things that uh, that are wrong and and that doesn't necessarily that doesn't add up to one diagnosis that you can easily treat yeah exactly and I think a lot of people um, are defined by their illnesses and that's like something that I think should be kind of you know accepted and not looked down upon that people can feel like their illness or disability defines their whole life because it does and I think for someone like me I've really moved away from diagnosis because I've gone through, you know, a 13-year journey with different diagnosis and different treatment. Um, and in the end, it seems to have no value for me. It doesn't do anything for me. It doesn't provide any relief for me. I'm mm. just sick. Mm. Um, mm. And I, I suppose a lot of people feel the same and feel like, especially when these illnesses aren't really taken seriously, it almost can be something you don't want to say. Mm. Sometimes if you say chronic fatigue, someone might, you know, be like, oh, that one, you know, the Mm. one that all women are just tired, you know, these kind and then you don't want to enter that space with this person. You don't want to have that conversation. And I think it's not always relevant just to have one name. And I think I've always really wanted 
some type of title that would just make it seem very serious. And I could say, oh, I have this. And everyone would say, oh, my God, yes, of course, you know. <laughs> and because I, I don't have that, um, I'll, I'll probably never have that and that reaction. It makes me not want to say it at all because then it, it ends up into, you know, this messy, like, oh, what's that? How do you get it, you know? Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm writing a book right now about all of this, and it's kind of a big, big subject. It's like a diagnosis and identity and how to engage with that and being selective of what conversations you're having. You know, it's less like a, a game. It's like a full-time job. Mm-hmm. You, you also, you write a very um, affecting piece in this issue uh, about your experience of going to the doctor. Um, and I guess one thing that I'd never really considered before is um, this sense of rehearsing what you're going to say and how you're going to say it so that you can come across as a rational person who can be helped uh, and then actually how that falls apart really quickly in the face of the questions that you're asked. I mean, is this something, it, it, is this effectively why you wanted to start the magazine? Yeah, definitely. I think um, rehearsing, all the idea of rehearsing and, you know, planning an appointment is something that I used to feel very alone in and then realizing that I was really so, so, so not alone and that people could really go through the exact same feeling and the exact same experience is something that really wanted, that made me want to start a magazine to that feeling of being alone. It sounds, you know, kind of cliche, but being 11, 12, 13, it was so isolating to really just feel like this total this just person who has never been seen before in the world. Mm. Um, and that's just so not true. I mean, there's just so many of us and finding this community has helped me so much. Mm. Um, I'm, I'm a little bit obsessed by the reasons for why people start independent magazines. And reading this one, it's just, it, it, all, <laughs> it all makes abundant sense in a, in a way that often it doesn't because... Yeah, as you say, there's this community of people out there and starting this magazine can, I guess, help to galvanise that community. But then everybody in the magazine is given their space to properly express their experience of it, which which obviously, while you have lots of things in common, there are obviously going to be a whole load of things that are different. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um... There's a, there, I mean, for example, there's a, a piece uh, by a writer called Sukchin Kaur. And so she actually writes about the, you know, the kind of strength that she's found in community. But um, she also writes about, so she's uh, Indian and she writes about the ableist discrimination that she's had from her family. And I guess, you know, that kind of intersection of chronic illness and race like it obviously that's going to produce a, a different experience to say the one that you would have as a white person yes exactly and I feel like it's something that I'm really trying to achieve with sick is having a diverse uh, range of voices and range of experiences mm-hmm. um and I think it's it's something that's also I working through an open submission it's like it's just dependent on what I get, you know, and I think I've received a lot of similar work just because of maybe the person I am and the illness I have and then kind of social media being a like basis of growing the magazine really and finding people to finding readers that I feel like the, this filter bubble (laughs) has made lots of, um, 
a lot of the contributors end up kind of having similar illnesses, a lot of energy limiting illnesses. Mm-hmm. I feel like we've had quite a lot of work with revolving around um, ME, CFS, um, fibro, um, and invisible illnesses in general, like the idea of looking fine. Um, mm-hmm. And that's something I want to continue to work on as the magazine grows is like making sure we really get more and more different experiences in it. Um, and I think even as you know disability is so diverse and it's there's such a range of experiences the collection of work can be a a real safe space for all of those and to not have you know i don't want it just to be chronic illness i want it to be this open community um where everyone feels like their work is really like treated with care and put in something Mm. that is really beautiful and that they can cherish Mm -hmm. so i'm i'm interested to hear like, what was the point when you decided that, you know, the thing that you need to do was make this print magazine? Yeah, it was kind of a really specific moment. I was in my second year of university, and I, th- I wrote about this in my um, issue of one editor's letter, that I just was, I was fired from a waitressing job because I was unreliable. And this wasn't, you know, a new experience. This was something that I'd spent years and years living with, this idea that I can't be relied upon, that I can't show up, that if anyone expects anything from me, I'm always going to let them down, that there was no space for me to exist where I didn't have to explain myself. And just even explaining yourself is so, so exhausting. Like, even if you do have a job with a non-disabled employer and they're the nicest person in the world and are super accommodating, for me, that's still such a hard environment to be in, um, mm-hmm. just because throughout my experience of being disbelieved, I'm always going to project that onto them, no matter how nice they are, how accommodating they are. And then just knowing that they've never experienced what I experienced, it's like they probably always look at me with skepticism. And mm-hmm. regardless of whether that's true or not, that's just the trauma that I've gone through. It's what I deal with. So I really felt like I couldn't exist in these spaces. I could only be with other people who understood and had gone through it as well. Um, And I've always loved magazines. I've always loved writing. Like it just seemed kind of like an obvious thing to turn to. I'd always wanted to work for a magazine. I never really thought I would make my own. But when I was in my room that day and I was just thinking how I knew that I just was, this was not a unique experience. And that's what really stuck with me. It was like so many people who I talked to would be so shocked by my experiences or how could that be and I guess it just started to make me mad because it's like it's not just me like you should be mad for so many people like Mm -hmm. we're all just like suffering in this ableist society Mm -hmm. Uh, and then I was just was like well I'm gonna make a magazine and it's just gonna be by disabled sick and disabled people and I think I needed that space for myself probably um and I thought um you know, I could be that accommodating person, even though it's not, you know, I'm not an employer in the traditional sense. I'm not, I don't have an office of people, but I try to make it a very accepting space. Um, and yeah, I just had this vision. I started planning it immediately, um, but I was on a student visa and I just thought, you know, I'll, I'll do this when I'm older and more professional and have experience and all that. It was kind of like, I'll just put this on hold and spend some time really thinking about it and gaining experience. Um, 
And it was kind of all, you know, I never forgot about it. It was always this, my long-term plan. I would tell everyone about my idea. I was very like, you know, proud of it and believed in it. And I knew I was going to do it. I just didn't know when. Um, so what So what was the trigger? What, what finally made it happen? It was living in Norwich, I think, and having um, good health for almost a year, not quite a year, but post when I when I graduated I had moved to Norwich with my partner and we moved into a flat with a friend of ours and honestly it was so affordable to live there and I was able to support myself on part-time bar work that I was amazed that I was able to to do I had you know really nice short shifts um and I was feeling for whatever reason you know permit no reason because there's no explanation for my body but I was feeling better and I felt more alive, more awake. I thought I'm feeling good. And I went to a pub with my friend and I was telling her about the idea and we were both kind of like, well, maybe now's the time. Maybe now's a good time. Like I'm, I'm feeling good. I can support myself. I felt so inspired by this like beautiful city I was living in. Um, and I was like, yeah. And it was kind of another, that same moment where like it just, took me a second to be all in. I was like, mm-hmm. okay, yeah, this is it. And then I went home and just started immediately. Um, and months and months of much more focused research. Um, and really, yeah, like I had the vision obviously, but then having to figure out how to do it was really stressful and made me really think I can't do this. I can't do the business side of things, like the money side of things um, and all that. But it, really changed a lot over the, those months, you know, the original ideas I had. Yeah, well, and, I mean, in, inevitably, surely. Wait, so when did the first issue come out? Uh, August 2019. Okay, 2019. And so then, I guess you, like, you're living in uh, inverted commas normal times then, uh, yeah. as in no pandemic. So then the what's the kind of the chronology with issue two and then issue three, which I, I've got in front of me now? So yeah, issue so issue one was like a pre kind of a preview. It was only thirty four pages, and it was kind of supposed to be like, if you like this, support us so we can make a full size issue. Um, and that was something that I spent a lot a lot of time with, like deciding how to present this kind of baby issue, because I really wanted to be able to pay contributors and you know have be able to manage the finances of it, and I felt like that would be the best way to kind of make enough money, hopefully, from that to be able to fund a bigger issue. Um, so it really is, is, was kind of like waiting and see to see how the sales went um, and how much support I got from that to start issue two. And it went, you know, it did really well and received a lot of support. And I had enough money to, um, you know, make the larger issue too. And that I'm pretty, I could be remembering incorrectly, but I'm actually, no, I did, I started it, during lockdown and I remember kind of being like should I be doing this like is this weird time to be doing this um but then I kind of realized that I didn't think the pandemic was actually going to affect producing the issue like the only thing I could think of is like would the printers be shut or something (laughs) but um I was like there's no reason there's nothing actually stopping me so I just went ahead with it um and yeah, that came out in the midst of the pandemic in May. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
And then that summer, as I write about in my issue three letter, um, I found myself moving back to the United States, um, which was, you know, personally just a very strange experience. And it is where I live now. And it was really hard for me to think about doing a third issue when I felt like my life had just gone through such a weird change. And I felt so much that sick was, um, you know, from Norwich. And so it felt weird to kind of have this UK magazine and be over here. Um, and I kind of had to sit with that for a little longer than I had kind of thought I would need to before I could start the issue. Um, but yeah, then I did it and it's been amazing. I'm so happy to have this out. Um, and I guess I'm just trying to come to terms with being, you know, kind of, I say running it remotely, but it's like the magazine, like is my desk kind of, you know? Mm. And I feel like I don't, I felt like I was being confusing by having this British magazine and then I'm living here. And then it's like, is it really that like people move all the time? You know, it's as simple as I started a magazine in England and now I'm moved to America and mm -hmm. the magazine is kind of split between those two places. Mm -hmm. And I guess, I mean, the, so the other big development and you, you've alluded to it already. Um, so you're writing a book now. I mean, do you see that as something that fits in? alongside the magazine or, or is this uh, is this then like sort of taking that kind of space in your life? I definitely um, am planning to keep them both going mm -hmm. um, alongside. I mean, I've been writing the book for, I think, just about two, almost two years now. Mm -hmm. um, so it's already been something that I've been doing alongside and um, I've just about finished uh, my full draft of it, which is very exciting. Um, but what's great about sick is I can really manage my own time and not have any pressure and not need to work on a certain timeline or certain hours of the day. Um, so it's really manageable for me, even though it can sometimes feel like, you know, very much a full-time job. Um, I, I'm in full control. I can, you know, take days off. I, it's, it's really freeing in the sense that like the slowness of it can be celebrated rather than like, oh, I need to respond to this email, I need to do this thing. And it's like the whole identity of the magazine is not, you know, conforming to this idea of like what we should be or how people should work mm. or should present themselves. Mm, so mm. I'm kind of putting all of those things into practice with how I run the magazine, how I communicate on behalf of the magazine and all that. Mm -hmm. uh, and you've spoken about, um, you know, your desire to keep on broadening out the uh, the, the type of uh, illnesses that are represented in the magazine. Is there anything else that, looking at what you've done so far and thinking about issue four and beyond, is there anything else that you would like to keep on changing or, or improving in some way? Um, I mean, I always have little ideas um, and little things that will pop up and I'll kind of make a note of it. and. I don't usually plan to strive for that. I'll have little ideas and think that if they're, if I feel strongly about it, it will keep coming up again and again until I can't kind of turn it away. Mm. Um, so I think, you know, having little ideas, something as simple as reaching out to someone to contribute instead of just doing submissions, just little things in the way I work. Um, I'm going to just constantly be considering and like, I'm really open to change and, 
for what I can improve about this magazine. I hope it's like constantly improving. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I would like some larger issues for sure. Um, but I do love like the illustrated covers are something I really want to continue with. Mm-hmm. I feel like it has a really strong um, visual identity and I'm that's something that I would really like to keep going and you know I'm not changed too much but definitely things about content that I think would be I could like having more interviews and things like that mm-hmm. um, but I'm kind of not I kind I'm just very kind of what happens happens when I have an idea I'll see how strong it is and kind of just go with the flow of things and not think too far ahead like I really haven't thought much about issue four right okay well so then that goes on to that that leads to my final question which is given that you actually want to use this as a way of challenging the uh, I guess sort of like standard ideas of uh, like efficiency and productivity and and sticking to the schedule do you then still have in your mind like a rough idea for when you want issue four to come out or will it literally be it, it's ready when it's ready um I have a rough idea but then it's also I try not to whenever I have an idea that I, I get excited about then I'll be let down or feel disappointed if it doesn't happen and I try to avoid that so I try to let it be very open um like for example with issue three I kind of had an idea oh, I'm going to do it this month and then when I couldn't do it then it, I felt really upset and like why can't I do it and then obviously I allowed myself the time but I would like to not even have that goal and to just go with how I feel I mean I do know that I aim for an, about an issue a year but that's not something I ever you know decided it was what felt natural in the cycle of me doing all the work like not right now I'm in this you know post publication zone of like you know, doing a lot of distribution and invoices and there's still so much work that I'm doing that I feel like I can't even think about anything beyond that. And then once that starts to trickle down um, and then there'll be some more space in my mind and I'll start thinking about issue four and then I'll start feeling bored and then I'll be like, (laughs) okay, I'm excited. I want to, I'm ready to open the window. And so that's just kind of how it happens. But I, I do think, I mean, issue four will probably fall within submissions will probably open in the winter or spring of next year Mm -hmm. but yeah just trying to take it one day at a time really yeah yeah well look um really good luck with that when you uh when you come to it uh and in the meantime thanks so much for taking the time to speak to me today yeah thank you so much it's been great to talk to you Okay, that's all for this week. I would like to say thanks again to Olivia for making the time to speak with me and good luck with both the book and issue four of Sick. We have copies of issue three in the stack shop now, so head over there if you want to see it for yourself and remember to use the code podcast to save 10% on that and anything else you like the look of in the shop. Thank you very much for listening to this one and we'll be back with another episode next week.